Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, everyone, and welcome to the Umarpreneur Live podcast. And here for a very special episode, I have with me Ustad Nauman Ali Khan from Bain Institute. Ustad Nauman, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you today? I'm good. Good. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. We're super excited to have this episode, and I know a lot of people are really looking forward to this because what we're going to do today is many, many know you as you know, this Quran teacher, this Islamic speaker, but not many know you as this entrepreneur and really know your story building Bayna Institute, which is now one of the leading Islamic institutions. And what was that journey like? What were the challenges, the lessons you learned along the way? So I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion to go through that experience with you, kind of get that backstory and understand more about you as a person. What were, what were really the experiences that you went through to be able to build this beautiful vision and really help so many people fall in love with the Quran, inshallah. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Are you excited? Yeah, I am. <laughs> Let's do it. Bismillah. So I want to really rewind and start right at the beginning and rewind back to when you were a young kid in New York City and going to high school. And I want to know back then, did you see yourself as, did you always see yourself as this person that would go on to dedicate their life to the Quran and sharing it with the world? Was that something that was on your mind back then? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> So what, what were you like back then? What were you as a, walk me through how you were like as a high school teenager. A terrified teenager. <laughs> fear would be my primary motive. The fear of uh, being an outcast, the fear of being humiliated for not speaking English well, the fear of, uh, uh, you know, being labeled. Uh, you know, when I, when I, when my parents moved to the U.S. and I went to high school, I didn't speak English. So I was in ESL, English as a second language class. Mm -hmm. And I did not communicate comfortably in a classroom. And this is public school in New York City, which doesn't look that much different from a train station. So, like, if you're if you're going to say something, you're not just going to get reprimanded or corrected by the teacher. You'll get humiliated by your classmates, mm -hmm. right? So it was a it was a culture shock, first of all, to be in that environment. Where did you move and, from? If you, if you uh, so. My family's kind of nomadic. My father served in the uh, Pakistan Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm -hmm. So his career has early on been about travel. So his first post was to Germany um, in the, the early mid-70s. Mm. And that's where my, my late sister and I, Rahimahullah, and I were born uh, in Germany, in Berlin. So our first language was actually uh, uh, was German. I've lost it now, but yeah. in, I went to kindergarten in German, <laughs> the German language. And then he got transferred back to Pakistan. We were there for about nine months or so. I picked up Urdu. Uh, and then he got transferred again to Saudiya. So we were in Riyadh. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, up until eighth grade, from second grade to eighth grade or so, I was in, uh, in Riyadh. Uh, but we were also, Riyadh then in the 80s was a very segregated society. I don't know how things are now, mm -hmm. but we, we couldn't go to Arabic schools. And we were in our own kind of isolated neighborhoods. We did, I didn't learn any Arabic while I was there. Okay. I learned to read Quran and stuff, but nothing else. Okay. Um, I remember going to Khutbah every Friday, not understanding anything. Right. Um, and so we were there. Um, I was in the Pakistani school system there. And then that got transferred again after the, uh, the Gulf War. Uh, and so in 92, we moved back to Pakistan, uh, which was, again, another culture shock because it's very different from Saudi and we were there for about a year, and then his papers came to serve in the, the uh, Pakistan mission to the United Nations here in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, so then we moved in end of 92, 93, we moved to New York City. And uh, 
went straight into high school. So I went from a very all boys only kind of school uniform, stand up when the teacher asks you a question kind of environment into, uh, you know, New York City high school. What so, was that? What did that feel like to go into such a melting pot of a city? And, you know, I'm sure there was a culture shock as well, where you join you know, the city where there's so many different cultures, it's so diverse, everyone has different belief systems, different opinions, yeah. and you were just thrown into it as a kid. Do you feel like that helped shape who you are today, build that confidence to kind of find yourself and be who you are today? The, the, the first thing that it did for me in high school is actually terrify me because it was a really mean environment. Like kids mm -hmm. are mean. Um, humiliating somebody else, you know, and uh, acting tough. And what are you looking at is the, is the culture, right. you know? And you don't know how to respond to that, that scene. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first impulse I had was to be safe. Right. And how do you become safe? You kind of try to become invisible. You try to blend in and you try to not raise your voice and you try to quietly just kind of be, be the guy that in, in the corner of the room kind of thing. Yeah. But slowly I made friends when I was in, uh, in high school. Um, I, it so happened that in, uh, in Pakistan, the mathematics were, was very advanced. So when I came into ninth grade, 10th grade in, in um, high school, I was already senior level mathematics. So my teacher actually, even though I'm in English as a second language, they made me a tutor for mathematics. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. that was my first teaching experience, wow. right? And through tutoring, I made friends with, you know, for the first time, American kids, because I'm helping them out for their exam, helping them with their homework, stuff like that, right? Yeah. And that sort of loosened me up and built a little bit of confidence in me. Still very reserved, very quiet. You know, I was the scrawny kid that like yeah. could easily get beat up. Almost got mugged a couple of times. So, <laughs> you know, um, it, it definitely it's a it's a, I, mean, I can only imagine the shock of changing in, an environment so quickly, and it's such a drastic difference between both. Yeah. But I also I definitely think you know hearing the story that probably part of those experiences that you went through go that helped build who you are today in terms of building up that confidence yeah, and two steps before i get to where i am yeah so the second step is okay fine i'm blending in i'm invisible but the second step is no i want to fit in mm -hmm. and in order to fit in i had to to walk like these guys and talk like these guys and allah just gave me something about picking up languages so i, I picked mm -hmm. up language very quickly so i picked up english really really quickly and of course the driving motivation was i want to be able to sound like everybody else i don't want to mm -hmm. have an accent yeah and um so within a few months, I'm speaking like the guys and I'm hanging out with them and I'm, I'm cussing like a sailor. Like I adapted everything, lock, stock and right. barrel, the way they dress, the way they, you know, they walk, they talk, all of it. And then I don't come from a wealthy family. So all of us worked. Mm -hmm. So um, I had to find a job and I happened to find a job in a, in a very gangster Spanish neighborhood where there was bachata, merengue and hip hop playing, blasting all day on the street. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm working at a clothing store that sells like oversized Tommy Hilfiger jeans and Carl Kanai boots and all that kind of stuff. And everybody's either <laughs> speaking Spanish or cursing you out. Those are the right. two things that are happening. So I, after school, I'm in that environment, right? And I became a chameleon. I learned to fit in whatever environment I'm in. And when I'm home, I'm the same kid from my family's always known. And when I'm at school, I'm completely someone else. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, it, it, it started exposing to me this idea of the, the false idea of freedom. Like we, we think of, you know, of America or New York City, like this liberated Western society. But for a teenager, for a young person, they're actually imprisoned because they're imprisoned by the impulse to want to fit in. And it's actually not liberating at all. I'm walking the way I have a strut in my walk 
not because I'm injured, but because I need to fit in with these guys. Or otherwise, I'm going to get beat up. Right. Right. So that was the, the first step. And I was in that scene for quite some time until about early college. And early college, I'm still carrying over that fake identity, which is what I call it, a fake fit-in identity. And mm -hmm. the college was a completely different scene. It was a completely different environment. People are not trying to fit in. They're just trying to get an education and move on with their life, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where I met some remarkable people, like people that did not care that they were wearing a T-shirt from Walmart or back in the day, Kmart. Or, mm -hmm. You know, they didn't wear that. They didn't care that they wore slippers to a class. I'm like, how, how do these people not care? What, what's going on here? This is weird. <laughs> New to me. And um, some of the most impression, like the people that left the most lasting impression on me were people I met in the Muslim Students Association. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these people still to this day, I think, helped liberate me from what I was becoming. Right. Yeah. And not by saying a word. They didn't say a word. Like I remember to this day, one friend of mine, he took me to an MSA meeting. I remember it was at Columbia University. So that was like the rich school. I was at Baruch College. We're the poor people's school. Right. So we go to this MSA meeting and I've never been to this. I don't even know what an MSA is. And there's all these like brothers and sisters in a, in a large circle and they're discussing the agenda for the meeting. And they've got this big poster of a child, an orphan um, from, uh, I believe it was Bangladesh. And there was some flood incident or something. And he's, he's been orphaned and they're pulling money together to sponsor this child and to get him an education and to get him adopted. And I'm just, they're discussing this. Like these are guys are maybe a year older than I am. You know, I'm a, I'm a freshman, they're sophomores. And this is what they're discussing. And I'm sitting there going, wow, their life is so meaningful. I've never heard people my age talk about anything other than what movie do you want to go see? Or like, you want to go get a, grab a pizza or let's go play ball. Or this was it. How are these people operating on a different scale? They're, they're, they're on a different frequency than everybody else. Because I've never seen young people like that. And it shook me to my core. Like it was, it, it compelled me so much to want to be part of that, to be part of something more meaningful than just looking in the mirror, you know? And um, that was, I think, a very transformative part of my experience. I didn't know what to do with that yet, but definitely it was a, uh, a transformative experience, which is why on a side note, I will say that no matter what, student activism on campus is one of the most important things, uh, services to Islam in any country where Muslims are a minority. Like, I believe it is a greater service than even the masajid and the learning institutions, all of it. It is what we can do for young people on campus mm -hmm. because they're exposed to the marketplace of ideas. They're exposed to whatever they're, they're looking for inspiration for the, what the rest of their life is going to look like. And... Man, I was I was really fortunate, and Alhamdulillah, I found inspiration in these people, and they don't even know that they inspired me. Well, I, they probably don't even know they didn't know my name when I was in that meeting, and I I wish I could meet these people that were in that meeting and come and thank them now. <laughs> was it like an overnight change when you when you went and experienced this dramatically different way of living from where you were in high school to now where you are in college? This different environment was it an instant change where you're like, okay. I've been trying to fit in this whole time. This is not who I was. Deep down, I love Islam, I love the Quran, and this is really where my heart is at, or was it a gradual progression? So, so the, the, the religious yeah. transformation is its own story. And mm -hmm. I, I've talked about that in other places. I don't want to bore you with those details. I've talked mm -hmm. about them uh, 
uh, quite a few times, but it was happening simultaneously. Right. And I was becoming more aware, consciously Muslim, if you want to call it that. Right. And me, me adapting to what everybody else was doing in high school. Part of that was compromising your Islam. Part of that was, in fact, hiding your Islam. In fact, it was, if I'm being blunt, being, a, being ashamed of your Islam mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit. Right. And going from that to Islam being something you're proud of and Islam is something that's empowering instead of a source of weakness, it's a source of strength is a huge transformation. And that transformation, um, it, it came in a few steps. And probably the most important of those steps was a dream that I saw that I've talked about before. And it was the craziest thing because I had snuck out of my house, hung out with my friends, partied until two or three in the morning, snuck back into the house. Mom and dad didn't find out. They would have flipped. They thought I'm sleeping in the basement where my room was. And all of a sudden I get the urge to pray. And I start and I, I prayed a little bit and then I passed out. And when I passed out, I actually saw a dream of me, of Adab al-Qabr actually, of, of the punishment of the grave. And wow. I'm being punished and I'm being told it's because I don't pray. Wow. And it was just like an overnight switch. Like I, I don't even know, I don't even remember how to pray anymore, but I got to pray, you know. And it's from then on, it's the, the successive weeks that I made friends with people that Allah just put in my path that uh, kind of made all of that easy for me. Hmm. You know, I used to be uh, straight up with you in high school, early college, even I was afraid of people with beards. Like those guys are extreme, man. Keep me away. Right. And that's actually a very common sentiment among Muslim youth mm -hmm. uh, and in Muslim culture for decades now. Right. Well, so, until like a beard became in with the hipsters, then exactly. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hipster Islam. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> SubhanAllah. So you were in that environment and, you know, you're going through this transformation. Can you point to a specific event, something that happened or a specific moment where you realized within yourself that you wanted to build Bayna Institute. I don't even know oh if it was God, even that's, called Bayna Institute, right? If it was even called that, I'm sure it was just a vague idea at a certain point in time. But yeah. was there a moment where you felt like, you know what, this is something that I need to do and I need to build this and share it with the world? Okay, so the share with the world thing, that's way later. It, it's mm -hmm. one horizon at a time. Mm -hmm. So my, my first horizon was, my God, the Quran is amazing. I didn't mm -hmm. know. I need to like tell everybody I know about this. <laughs> Because this is incredible stuff. I thought I understood what it said. And the, when the first time I got exposed to the power of the Quran, by studying and, and getting exposed to the Arabic language and then engaging with the Quran in the way that I was exposed, I said, I just got to do something about this. So I started learning and then sharing. So I became the MSA, the MSA brother that goes and gives a dars of the Quran. It was like maybe 20 different MSAs. I was going from MSA to MSA, masjid to masjid, hopping around giving khutbahs. Word of mouth. This is not this this is yeah. this is the ancient times, right? This is before the online stuff. So I'm just the guy that just constantly is talking about the Quran, constantly, because I just fell in love with this book. Mm -hmm. And then I fell in love with Arabic, and I told my friends in college, "Yo, you gotta learn Arabic." Like, How are we gonna learn Arabic? I was like, "I'll teach you." So I set up a board, like a dry erase board in the MSA room and the two guys sitting with me, two brothers and a sister. And I'll just keep teaching them like Arabic and stuff. And they they got bored and they left. And, you know, there was only one sister left. I was like, I'm sorry, I can't teach you anymore. And uh, <laughs> so that was the start of, I just had this bug in me that I want to teach. I want to share this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if, I, I wasn't thinking of like global organization and, 
you know, something that influences millions of people. That wasn't even on my mind. What was the first thing on my mind was, I just really think that I'm not going to remember this stuff if I don't teach it. I'm, I'm going to lose my, my own motivation and my own fuel if I'm not constantly giving it to somebody else. So I started looking for opportunities to teach this stuff. As that happened, of course, uh, I did mention that because this is the entrepreneurial discussion, um, my family couldn't afford my college tuition. So I paid my way through school. And if I didn't have enough money, I took less courses. That's how it was. And then my dad got transferred back. So I was living on my own. So I had rent now, rent, food, uh, commute, uh, you know, the, the metro card and, you know, college expenses. That's all my own expense. I can't rely on anybody else. In fact, I'm even trying to go, you know, send money back home. So my job was full time. My college was semi full time. Most of the time it was full time. Commute took lots and lots of hours. Uh, I was basically financing myself. And then on top of that, I have this bug to, to learn and to teach. So it wasn't like this. I have this like extra time where I can go and do this. I have to must, you know, muscle out time to learn this stuff and to, to try and teach this stuff. But because I was already working full time since uh, freshman year of college, it helped my career advancement quite a bit. So I got into, and this is going to answer your question. I got, I got into full-time work in the technology industry by the time I was a junior in, uh, in college and while going to school. So I haven't even graduated yet, but I have a full-time job and it's a job paying roughly the same as people that have graduated. Um, and my bosses loved my work and I kept moving up and then I got another position and I became a design director of the company. Um, because my, my two areas of interest, or at least skill sets, one was on the technology side, one was on the design side. I'm a creative. Yeah. So I did a lot of like website design back in the day and uh, animation and that kind of stuff. So I'm in these fields, I'm doing well for myself and things are moving forward, but I'm grossly dissatisfied. And the reason I was dissatisfied was in the technology industry, you're at work when you're at work. Yeah. And you're also at work when you're home because you have to keep up with emerging tech. And if you don't keep up, you're a dinosaur in six months. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're obsolete, yeah. right? And I felt like this is not the kind of life I want to live. Like I enjoy doing this stuff, but this is not what, that, that old bug from the MSA doing something purposeful that was still bothering me. Like, is, is this what I want to do with my life? Am I wired for this? And I, I've, you know, I've been working, I've had bosses. It's not like I'm unable to do work. You know, a lot of times, I should say a lot of times people don't want to go the uh, entrepreneurial route because they don't have the discipline to keep a job. Right. <laughs> right. So I'll be my own boss. Yeah. You know? so, but they and, realize that it takes more discipline to be an entrepreneur. Though. Exactly. So yeah. it is because I have been in the grind of working everything from a shoe store to a newspaper to like, uh, you know, a, a computer sales office to a surgical office, I have all kinds of jobs. And I've been in trouble at work too. I, I got fired from jobs before for messing up. It is because of that experience, I already had like the, the grit to put work in. Mm -hmm. You and understood the value of hard of work. Place, yeah. And New York mm -hmm. is a kind of place you basically live hand to mouth. Hard work mm -hmm. is part of the DNA of the city. It's not like any other place I've ever seen as far as survival. It's a really tough place to survive, you know? Yeah. Um, so with that mindset, I, I started thinking to myself, should I be just teaching Arabic full time? Who's even going to want to learn Arabic full time? And I talked to some of my college buddies 
my some of my MSA guys, and I'm like, hey, I want to do this like full time. What do you think? I'm like you're stupid. Who's gonna come to an Arabic class? And what are you talking about? I was like, no, I want to try. I want to just see how this this thing plays out. And I um, tried out. I, I tried an intensive uh, at a at a mosque in uh, at a masjid in New York City in, in Flushing, and uh, fifty people showed up. I tried another one. A hundred people showed up. And I was like, this is working. People are actually enjoying this. Because for me, validation wasn't going to be the ideas in my head. There's a case study, right? There are people who actually like enjoyed learning this. And now, before I think about a, an organization that's going to inspire millions to study the Quran, my whole thing was, man, this way, I get to do what I love and earn a living. And I don't have to worry about if I could just put this all together, so what did I need? I needed a website, I needed a design, a logo design, a company design, I needed, and all of those skills were already embedded in me from my work and school experience. Mm-hmm. So I put the website together, I put the logo and the design together. It wasn't called Bayina then, uh, it was called Husna Learning Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I put that all together and put it out there. And before I knew it, I started getting emails from like, Louisiana and California and Baltimore and like Philadelphia. Hey, can you teach here? Can you come to our masjid? Can you do this? And I'm this kid in New York. We'll just put this together, see what happens. And I'm starting to get calls from all over the place. And that's kind of started my my first horizon. I'm going to make this my full-time career. I just want to go and teach these intensive courses and see light bulbs go off on top of people's heads. It's such a high for me to see somebody who understands it, who gets it to make Arabic easy for someone, to make accessing Qur'an easy for someone. That was my thing. It wasn't even the dhurus of the Qur'an yet. Those were going on anyway. But it was like, I just want to make Arabic easy for people because we were so scared of the subject and it seems like this endless intimidating ocean. That's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, my job isn't even to teach you. My job is to make sure you walk out of this saying, this is not so hard. I can keep taking little steps and I'll get pretty far. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And I did that 150 times a 10-day crash course uh, in local communities across the United States 150 times. <laughs> like, what was I, that? Stop. I'm just going everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And it, I wasn't even, there was no marketing. Mm-hmm. There was no, you know, this is not Google placed ads. You know, there's no meta. Word of mouth. It's entirely word of mouth, mm-hmm. entirely, right? And the, the more backlog I got, I, I knew that if I kept going, I have already in the pipeline the next 10 years of intensives wow right and the the income from it was easily able to sustain my travel my stay provide for my family everything's okay mm-hmm. and I, I did I, I did put into policy a couple of things that were in line with my own principles like my teacher taught me and there was a fee and I couldn't afford it at the time and he said don't worry about it so other students paid a fee I didn't pay a fee and that was stuck in my head. So when I went and taught these intensives, I created a policy. The, the fee for this 10-day class is 100 bucks. If you can't afford it, it's free. Don't explain yourself. Just sit down. That's all. That's, you know. Amazing. And others in the field, people that were starting to create Islamic institutions and courses and stuff like that, are like, what are you doing? This is crazy. You should have a tag to check for paid or you know, ink on their thumbs so they can verify their way. If they go back to drink some water, they come back, they can check. Because you make, you can make sure that people are paid and they're not getting a free ride. I was like, who cares? Mm-hmm. 
if, if, if they're coming to learn the Quran, the least I should expect from them is integrity, right? And if they can afford it, Allah knows. And if they can't afford it, Allah knows. And if they're lying to me to learn the Quran, that's too counterintuitive. Yeah. It doesn't work. And what's and, remarkable about that story is that 98% of the tuitions were always paid mashallah. by the end of any class without me asking, without me, me just saying, if you can afford it, you can. If you can't, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And we would have 98% collections in any course that I taught. And that was the kind of the, the, the second major horizon. And then I realized, man, I don't know. This, this stuff is cool, but I got to do something more. Yeah. You know, because when, whenever you cross one horizon and your view enhances, right? You, you scale one mountain, you see more in front of you that you didn't see before. So I see the next horizon in front of me. And I'm like, my students keep asking me for like, because these examples I give in class to keep students motivated about what makes the Quran beautiful. Hey, can you make a course just about what makes the Quran beautiful? That'd be so cool. You were, de- you were doing everything live back then, uh, pretty much like in person. So in you're going to have an, an online resource there. All of this. All right. And yeah. what's beautiful is uh, with what you're doing now, just to kind of echo what you just said earlier in that you're, you're essentially being a dream movement and what you've created within that. I watched the video and it was beautiful. You're still practicing that to this day where through yeah. being a dream, you have, look, if you can afford it, you can go ahead and join the courses. If you can't afford it, it's okay. If someone else wants to donate to sponsor learner of the Quran, they can, but we are still abiding by this. And that's just remarkable that to this day, your institution still abides by that rule that you just shared with me. Yeah. It's an extension of my own philosophy. So, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to depart. I I don't think I'll ever depart from that philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that was in my head was I saw coming up in the Islamic scene, I saw masjids, Islamic schools, da'wah organizations, um, you know, Islamic educational institutions. And either they had very strict and almost unaffordable tuition policies, right? Or they were dependent heavily on fundraising. Right. They were just constantly, I don't want to put it, demean any organization, but the observation for me felt like, it felt like begging all the time. Mm-hmm. It was so demeaning. And I had so much respect for my own work that like, I never wanted to be in a, put in a position where I cannot continue doing my work unless somebody gives me sadaqah. I don't want to live off of sadaqah. I don't want to do this work off of sadaqah. I want this to, I want this to be so powerful that this organization gives sadaqah to other causes. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. And that's when I realized the nonprofit route, the, the charitable organization route, is not the way I want to go. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go full on LLC and my 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 pizzeria analogy still sticks to my in my head. If if you make good pizza, it's gonna your pizzeria is gonna do great. Right. And if you you are horrible at what you're making, it's an insult to cheese. Then you will not have customers. I love cheese. Right? It's hard to mess up cheese, though. Honey. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> be really surprised. bad if you're gonna mess up cheese. Cheese is delicious. But the thing is, right? Islamic <laughs> organizations can exist by religious guilt tripping. They can say, "Hey, we yeah. don't provide a good service. We're not giving you good education. We, we haven't taken care of the youth. We haven't done any of that." But for the sake of Allah, who's gonna give to ten thousand dollars? Here's the hadith of, of sadaqah. Here are the ayat of giving in the path of Allah. Yeah. So what? The quality hasn't improved, but the fundraising tactics have, mm-hmm. right? And that to me was unethical to me right. personally. I didn't see that there was there was grounds for that. Mm-hmm. So I decided to make it a I'm I'm putting my heart and soul into this work. I'm providing college level education or better. Um, and I had validation for that because I had college professors come and sit in my class and say, I've never met a better teacher. And that felt like, OK, you know what? 
their fan base is something else. When someone in the field comes and validates your work, okay, alhamdulillah, you we're doing something. You that trust, yeah. You know? And, and that's important so, for a lot of people to hear, actually, because you know a lot of people that I speak to that are Islamic scholars, that when it comes to anything relating to Islam, a lot of people have the hesitation towards charging. And then it's like, okay, but how are you supposed to sustain yourself? How are you supposed to, uh, you know, actually continue to do what you do? You know, I know so many brothers that, you know, literally spend hours upon hours every single day studying Islam, studying the Quran, studying Fiqh. And then it's like, and when I talk to them and I'm like, hey, okay, start a class, charge this. I don't want to charge. Do I really want to charge for the deen? And there's kind of like almost this, this mindset that people don't want to charge and it's wrong to charge. But when you look even during the Islamic golden age, the highest paid people in the Islamic golden age were the imams, were the teachers, were the shuyukh. These were the, these were the highest status people within those societies. To me, it's actually more than that. To me, it's not even about charging for Islamic content or Islamic work. To me, the idea is, is you're, you're not able to provide quality service mm -hmm. if you're not fully dedicated. Correct. And if you expect someone to be fully dedicated, first of all, there's the quality of the work, right? So not everybody's entitled to um, uh, be paid for services that they're not providing at a good quality. But if, in fact, you are providing a quality service, and how will you know you're providing a quality service? There's a line out the door. People want to yeah. learn from you. People want to hear more about what you have to say. People were saying, when's the next course starting, right? The... The, the student review speaks for itself. The, the customer is the best validation, right? My credentials mean nothing. My, the, the building I'm in means nothing. This is all the superfluous stuff, the real, the, the real substance, the real secret sauce to any venture that is worth paying for. And in fact, my philosophy was, whatever somebody's gonna pay, I wanna give them 100 times more value than what they're paying. Mm -hmm. Like they should feel like they got away with it. Yeah. when they're paying and even then they shouldn't have to pay if they can that that was my my entire philosophy right yeah. so in that note along those lines that is how you make powerful institutions whether they're islamic or anything else and when you make powerful institutions like that they're able to make institutional level change mm -hmm. right they're able to do research that others can't do they're able to provide services others can't provide because they're struggling and scrapping for funds to be able to do so right, right? and so like, I, I have a vision for what's going to go into the future. And that's not just about my work. My work is a stepping stone to other things. I want to be able to produce documentary films, short films. I want to be able to engage in, you know, uh, journalistic type of work, other kinds of media, highlight other kinds of talent. You know, uh, it, uh, if, if we're going to be, and we are now a media organization, then Quran-inspired media isn't just a lecture. That's the starting point. But Quran-inspired media can take any number of forms, right? And that takes money. That takes creative production skill. That takes a lot of entrepreneurship on its own. Yeah. But how do you even get there if you don't have a base already to be able to invest in those kinds of ventures and experiment and learn? Because yeah. these are new horizons. You're going you're gonna to jump in. You're going to fail. Something's not going to work right. And you're going to learn from that and try again and try again and try again. That's yeah. how it's going to work. You need so, a sustainable business model. Absolutely. And I absolutely believe in charging for services. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. if, if it's a quality service, you better pay for it. You should pay for it. Why shouldn't you pay for it? And in fact, there are teachers that that I take courses from, that teach courses online and stuff. And sometimes I'll take a course with one of them and they're charging. And it makes me so happy that I got to actually pay the tuition for a course that somebody's teaching course. that I'm, I'm learning from because... I don't think twice about paying good money to learn video editing or to pay good money to you know get a 
to learn programming or app development or whatever else. Yeah. This is so much more valuable. This is so much more transformative. Yeah. And if and if I start thinking that people that are, are charging money are just after the money, no money like anything else is a means to an end. And right. when people have a higher purpose, then this is just you're just handing them a brick that they're going to use to build something more. Right. right. So you actually become part of a continuous Sadaqa Jariya yourself. Mm -hmm. You you signed up for somebody's course to learn, but this person then used those funds to get better equipment, to do more courses, to teach, to hire another teacher, to teach other stuff. So you're you're creating this ripple effect yeah. by by supporting quality work. Hundred percent. I want to ask you, what was it like when you went to your parents and your family and you told them, "I'm not going to pursue an academic career. I'm going to dedicate my life to the Quran, and this is what I'm going to do full time." Were they fully supportive and hundred percent behind you, or were there some hesitations there that you had to kind of go through with them? Uh, I come from a Pakistani family. <laughs> um, so is that, that the answer within the answer? <laughs> they're extremely supportive. And I love the fact that they're awesome. honest with me all the time. Alhamdulillah. And were they shell-shocked. Mm. I'm the only son. I have three sisters. One of them yeah. passed, Rahmanullah, my elder sister, Saima. Allah grant her forgiveness. Um, but uh, they were absolutely shocked. Mm. This is why we left you in America. What are you doing with your life? You're going to teach Alif Ba for a living? Are we going to show our face to society? It was, and I don't blame them. This is how the culture has conditioned um, our families. And you know what? In many cases, they're right. When somebody says, this is what I want to do, and they have no plan, they have no no path, they have no, you know, they haven't tested the product. They don't know if this is going to work. They just say, this is just what I want to do. I want to serve and Islam. Um, that's being idealistic and rather stupid. If you don't have a real plan of how you're going to make ends meet, how are you going to take care of your family? How are you going to provide for yourself? No, Allah will provide. No, 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 no. This is not, that, that, I don't believe in that model. If, if you haven't come up with a real financial plan and you haven't tested it and you know for a fact it doesn't work, then keep working full time. I don't care if you're a mechanic. I don't care if you work at a donut shop. Keep working and doing this on the side until you've built enough power and enough you know, sustainability to transition away. I didn't quit my job and do this. Absolutely not. I had my job full time. And I was doing this on the side until I realized this can stand on its own. You know, mm -hmm. and this is a, 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 a reality check that I want to give young Islamic workers. I don't want you to just jump into Islamic work because when the, when the money runs dry for you and you're not able to pay the bills and you have to go and ask for sadaqah or loans from your friends, the inspiration you have to do Islamic work will also dry up. Now you're doing Islamic work to pay a bill. Now you're doing the next class because you got you got mouths to feed. And the entire inspiration and motivation for why you were doing this to begin with has now died because it's just about grabbing the next, you know, little bit of revenue that comes in from the next thing you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Money should become a non-factor in Islamic work. Yeah. Right. It should become a non-factor. And my, my, my first inclination was, I need to make enough that food is being put on the table, family's taken care of, and I can just do what I love. Yeah. So I wasn't checking on how much did I make, how much did I make. I was like, the needs are met, I'm good to go, right? And with, but but you have to draw a reasonable line just because you want to live on a, a, a you know on the live on the floor with a mattress made of books doesn't mean you can put your wife through that. Doesn't mean your kids deserve that. Like. If you decided to become the head of a family and you're responsible enough to start a family, then you have to think about their finances, right? 
So this balanced, what I think is a balanced approach, it's sustainable in the long run. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be miserable in a couple of years. And that whole idealistic thing you had, now you're just driving an Uber. You know, now you're, you're nowhere. But I don't want that for anybody. If, if you have a powerful idea, if you have a great service that you think you can provide, work, have a job, save up, experiment on the weekends, experiment in the evenings, stay up late at night, you know, put in that extra work yeah. and then see if this thing will actually work. Mm -hmm. Try it out and then take the next step. It's because I traveled in my free time and I got validation from so many, including professionals, that this is something that can work. That made me say, you know what, it's time to take a leap. I, I wouldn't even call it a leap of blind faith. It was a leap of well-calculated faith. <laughs> right. Like, you, know? you saw that the, it was growing to a point where it could sustain you to that point. And yeah. it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people do reach out to me. You know, a lot of Muslims wanting to start a business and they say, oh, well, brother, I, um, uh, I don't have a job right now. I don't have any income, can't invest in anything, but I, I really want to start a business. And I, and I usually reply. I tell them, unfortunately, I don't recommend you start a business then. You should probably get some sort of a stable source of income. And then you use your free time to start a business because yes. you, you'd be operating from a place of fear instead of a place of inspiration, of wanting to serve, wanting to make an impact. And that difference will show in the way that you go about doing your business and yep. doing everything in terms of transacting with clients, the products, the services that you offer, it's just going to show, you know, there's yep. no way to hide it. Yep. And plus I'm in, I'm in the business of seeking inspiration mm -hmm. and then offering that inspiration. I, that's what I wanted to do for my life. I wanted to seek inspiration from Allah's word and be able to share that with others. Right. If there are anxieties about livelihood, associated with that, then let me tell you, there's an axiom in Arabic, what comes out of the heart goes into the heart. Mm. You can see through it. Like if there is a genuineness, you'll see it. And if there isn't, you'll see it. it. It comes across. No matter how much you try to hide it, it comes across. And sincerity, I don't want to put it in business terms, but sincerity sells. Right. You know, And you can't fake it. You can't fake sincerity. You know, our, our religion is predicated on ikhlas, but actually the world of business is also predicated on ikhlas. You can tell when somebody loves their work. When you, when you hire a construction company, when you hire an architect, when you hire, you know, uh, recently I hired an architect for a project that I'm working on and uh, the guy doesn't need the job. Another architect asked for work and he needs the job. He's like, I really need this. And that was the first red flag. I don't, I don't want to work with this person. Right. And the other one's like, look, I've already built this, this, and this. And this is a side hobby that I have. I love doing this stuff. It's not even in my direct line of work. But this is what I love to do. And I look at his work and I'm like, yep, I want to work with you. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's, there's a, there's a labor, there's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. Right? Correct. Uh, it's not a labor of finances right. or labor of necessity. Mm -hmm. Was there a defining moment in your journey where you started to realize like that? that realization came in that, okay, this dream that I had, this vision that I had for building an Islamic Institute, which is now Baina, it's actually happening and it's not just a dream anymore. And this organization is growing and we're getting a lot of people that want to work with us, that want to be part of our courses. Was there a defining moment where you kind of realized this is not a startup anymore? This is really taking off and it's becoming so, an institution. I did podcasts many years ago mm -hmm. and uh, I get an email from, I believe it was at the time, the Minister of Finance of Indonesia. Wow. 
who said his entire family is waiting for the next episode. Where are they? Amazing. So that was, was my podcast in Jazama. And I'm like, right. Minister of Finance. <laughs> what? I'm in, I was in Maryland at the time, mm-hmm. between New York and Maryland. What? How did this reach over there? What's going on? Right. And then I start looking at our, um, our download rate in our mm-hmm. podcast. There were terabytes being downloaded, terabytes. And I'm in absolute shock. Like this is as, I didn't realize it was global, actually. Mm-hmm. I went to the UK for the first time. And I was accustomed to audiences in the United States. This is maybe early 2011, 2012 type uh, time. And I was accustomed to, you know, a couple of hundred people audiences in, in the U.S. And I go for the first time and there's over a thousand people crammed inside of a small masjid because I'm speaking there. And I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> this is crazy. And the kinds of questions that are coming. There are people that are studying Quran. They're they're studying at Azhar. They've graduated from Adar al-Ulum. And they're coming and saying, we've been learning your dhurus. I use it in my khutbas. I don't give you credit. Is that okay? I'm like, yeah, it's okay. But why are you, what is happening? <laughs> And then other scholars start approaching me and say, hey, I've listened to your lectures. You're missing this research. I've been doing research on this. Can you take a look at it? I think you'd really benefit from it. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for this remarkable talent and work. They're seeking me out now. I become a magnet for them. And that was a big aha moment for me. You know, like this thing should now I cannot think about, oh, what am I going to do for the next 10 years? Or what am I going to do? Uh, what next project am I going to take on? That's not how I think anymore. I'm thinking, how is Bayina going to impact globally? Yeah. What steps are we taking towards global impact this year? And what next steps are taken next year? And what next steps are taken next year? And so the what used to be personal horizons then kind of mentally transformed into institutional horizons. And that's what I now see the work as. I see it as how do we create this to scale, mm-hmm. you know, how do we how, uh, how do we build something that leaves a mark on uh, on in the world yeah. and carries this work forward? I'll I'll say one more thing that I think you don't expect from an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs want to push their brand, right? They want to push their brand. They want the world to know what this brand is. I want to push a cause. Mm. I don't want to push a brand. In fact, to this day, Bayina is a lot less known than Nomad Ali Khan. Exponentially less, actually. There are people that have listened to, to a thousand hours of me or more, and they don't know Bayina exists. That's a reality. And that's a testament testimony to this, not the failure of Bayina branding, but to the success of promoting the cause. Hmm. Right? And this ties into uh, even thinking about succession. Because... Unlike Apple or, you know, other established brands that were kind of centered around a personality, right? And when that personality is gone, the yeah. brand starts taking a hit. Mm-hmm. Unless they're able to de- de-link personality from the product, right? To an extent, Apple is a good example. They've been able to do that. They've been able to separate the personality from the product, which was a big, big ask, yeah. right? Um, but they were able to do that. When we think of this field of Quran, not just Quran education, but Quran inspiration, I personally believe this is the kind of field that you cannot create succession planning in. Mm -hmm. Allah chose me from the most obscure 
unexpected source like uh, Queens, New York, <laughs> a wannabe kid, you know, like it's, it's not part of a plan. And if I proliferate this, this cause, this message, this inspiration, Allah only knows where the next person to take this up in a way that I, they can take all the resources I've created, but they take this up in a, yet another entrepreneurial way. And they do this in a way that far surpasses anything I could have done. And in fact, them being under Bayna's shadow would have been a limiting factor. That would have been something that takes away from the cause. Because something else was needed for their generation. Something new and innovative was needed for them. That, that they'll rise. And that's what excites me. That what excites me is when I see like some of my Arabic courses translated into French and there's schools opening up or women that are that are teaching in French in like some village where 30 people have now taken Shahada. Like, I'm like, this, this is what I was going for. Yeah. But you know, it's just a vehicle. Right. And that's, I think it, it, it puts my work and my own thought process apart from other entrepreneurial ventures. And that I only see the venture, the, the branding of Bayina as simply a vehicle to something much more important, mm -hmm. the cause itself. And so for you, you would want to create that disconnect between Bayina and yourself because you want it to be, you want to pass on the helm essentially, and you want the future generation to just also continue to build this vision. And yeah. ultimately what you're doing is simply laying the groundwork for them to, to continue on. Yeah, I, I think of it in tech terms, I think of it as like cloud services. Right. I want to provide resources um, that people can download, that people can stream, that people can take, and then how they take that and what they do with it is none of my business, mm -hmm. you know? And if I can create a comprehensive enough cloud service, a library of services, transfer that over, right? Then, oops, you know, even the sky is not the limit. Yeah, you definitely, know? definitely. Can you think of a specific inspiration from a story of a prophet or maybe a hadith or a verse that you would refer back to when you were experiencing times of challenge in your business as any entrepreneur would definitely experience it's not always sunshine and roses right there's times where it's really tough we even think of are we made for this and you know should i keep going and in those moments what were you referring what were you using as your anchor to keep going um it's an ayah that's been stuck with me since i was 18. it's the same ayah it's uh so the Prophet was told not to dare say something that, that he will do such and such tomorrow, except that Allah wills it. And to remember your master when you forget. And then he says, and then say this. Okay, now that you remember your master, what should you say? You should say asa, which is a word of hope. It is my hope that my master will guide me to something closer than this in being upright. Mm. In other words, I connected uh, the success and the failure of Bayina. In my mind, it's connected with uprightness. And this is a story I haven't shared ever before. I'll tell you something. There was a time before I hit a major obstacle in my life, major, major obstacle in my life. And the moments before I hit that obstacle, Bayina had never been more successful. Like it was crazy. I was getting direct phone calls from presidents, 
I was turning down interviews from international media organizations. I, the, the, there were over a hundred schools kind of waiting for us to kind of give them our curriculum so they can launch it in schools, which is not, you're not going to the, you're not going B to C, you're going B to B now. Yeah. Right. And even B to G governments are saying, how do we implement Bayna inspired curricula for all of our, all of our, you know, 3000 schools in our country, Muslim countries. This was on a different a scale I never imagined. And a thought came in my head. A thought came, wow, we made it. SubhanAllah, we made it. I still remember where I was driving when I had that thought. And then I hit a roadblock in my life in Bayina and that I've never imagined. And you know, I think back and I say, it's exactly because of that thought. Mm. Because you forget your problem, even for a moment. Even if you said Alhamdulillah at the end of that, you still kind of forgot your problem. You, you still forgot. And I had to be given a divine reality check. And that reality check was whatever good Allah will give this movement, this cause, this, this bayina thing, it will be because I'm trying to get closer to Quran myself. And I'm trying to do this first and foremost as my journey to my love. Everything else, that's the pebble. Everything else are the ripples. When my focus gets on the ripples, then this is all lost. Mm -hmm. All of it's worthless. You know? And call it a spiritual principle. For me, that's actually the business principle. Going mm -hmm. back and reminding yourself. I'm studying Quran now, right? This is what I get to do. My dua to Allah 20 years ago was, Ya Allah, put me in a situation, a financial situation, where I can study the Quran freely without any concerns and just teach the word to the best of my ability. Just give me that. That I have the freedom to study your book as much as I want. Mm -hmm. As much as I want. In other words, I wanted to be in charge of my own schedule, right? I, Allah answered that dua for me. He did. And I know for a fact Allah does not give the opportunity, the ni'mah, the, the opening of the doors that he's given me. I know that that's not a common thing. I, I know that. But what that comes with is a heavy weight. Yes. What that comes with is if Allah has so uniquely opened these doors for me, mm -hmm. that must mean I need to honor those doors. I need to honor that more than others. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I've if I've disappointed him, I need to hold myself to account and really step up. You know, because you can give it to whoever he can honor, empower whoever and humiliate and weaken whoever. That's that's up to him. But if he allows to keep a blessing with you then you better step up and honor it. 100%. And when I make this dua, subhanAllah, what's happened with me also is the study of the Quran has evolved for me. You know, the way I used to think about the Qur'an and studying of a surah three years ago is not the same as now. Five years ago is not the same as now. And it's continually getting more and more, I feel more and more nuanced. It's not there, but it's, I, I see it differently than I used to, right? And that's part of the blessing that Allah has given me. Alhamdulillah. 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 If you could, you know, give one piece of advice for all our bright-eyed, you know, super inspired young Muslims right now who are listening to this, who are thinking of being entrepreneurs, or maybe they're not even thinking about being entrepreneurs, but they, they're about to start their professional careers. And 
embark on this journey of life, right? Is if there's one thing that you can tell them that they could hold on to as they go through this tumultuous journey, all the ups, the downs, the failures, the disappointments, the challenges, what would you tell them? What's that one thing for you? First of all, have grit, um, have real work ethic, uh, learn to respect uh, your time mm -hmm. uh, and, and dedicate yourself and have serious targets and serious goals. And second of all, on the entrepreneurial side, if and when you have an idea and you know in your heart of hearts that it works, you've done the homework, you've done the groundwork, you are intellectually, not emotionally, intellectually convinced that this is it, this is going to work. Then you need to emotionally disconnect yourself from all those who doubt in you. Mm -hmm. The doubts will come from loved ones. The doubts will come from friends. The doubts will come from people who say you're wasting your time, you're crazy, all that stuff. If you've worked this out in your head clearly and you've tested your ideas, then the emotional criticisms need to get blocked out. Intellectual criticisms, logical criticisms, hey, this doesn't add up because this is not going to work or that's not going to work. Those you need to keep in, like your mind and heart open too because you will need that criticism to refine what you're doing, to rethink what you're doing, maybe even to walk away from what you're doing because it wasn't well thought out enough. But emotional criticism, you're such a loser. Oh, here's another venture. Oh my God, why are you wasting everybody's time? Why can't you do something like, why can't you be like everybody else? Mm -hmm. Look at this one, they got a nice job. Look at that one, they're already getting married. Look at that one, they're already, they're already buying a house. And look at you. That kind of emotional nonsense, you need to tune it out. You need to hear it with a smile and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it's not hard to, it's not easy to listen to that stuff, but you will develop, you, you cannot be entrepreneurial if you don't develop a thick skin. Mm -hmm. If you don't develop, it's not going to happen. It's just not for you. You know, you know people see the end product, but you know, people see like, Alhamdulillah, a, a, an organization that's reaching millions. They, they see that, but they don't see the 120 hours a week. Yeah, 100 hours a week, the sleepless nights, the emotional, sleepless, sleepless yeah. nights, exhausting amounts of work. There was a time where I was the full time teacher, the counselor, the, uh, the, the tax accountant, the administrator, the security, the, the guy who's put all the furniture together, the, <laughs> the installer, the technician. I was all of those things while, you know, taking care of a family, while taking care of my parents. I was like 10 jobs in a day. Yeah. You know, and if you're going to go into this, then you better go all in. 100%. Better go all in. 100%. There's like a khair for that, Ustad. We're going to take two, three questions from the audience because there's sure. hundreds of people that joined us today. And we did make a little promise. We said, listen, we'll take two or three questions from you guys. Okay. So we're going to bring up, inshallah, two or three questions from the audience as well and give a chance for the people listening to ask some questions. So. Brother Muhammad from uh, YouTube, he says, what is the secret behind the Baraka in his time? Mashallah, he's doing many, many things, many lectures, studying gym, etc. So actually that relates directly to what you were saying. How do you manage everything? How do you juggle all of the responsibilities? Uh, you want me to tell you what my day looks like? <laughs> tell me, tell me, I think even more importantly, how do you go through it? Like a lot of people, they finish work and they're like, I'm done. Netflix and chill. That's it. You know, how do you, how do you yeah. keep it going? Well, I have, the, I have yeah. the chill time too. For sure. Chill time is actually really important to me. Uh, it's part of what keeps me going. But um, for me, the secret is two things that determine whether a day is going to be productive or not. And by the way, when you get your day to be productive, then life is productive. Um, 
how early you get the start of your day, like Fajr is the start of the day, right? In Ramadan, it's even pre-Fajr, obviously, but Fajr should be the start of a day for anybody who wants to accomplish anything serious in life. So by, by 10 a.m., I've already done quite a bit of work, spiritual work, work work, and personal take, taking care of my personal self, like exercise and stuff. Yeah. All of that's done by 10 a.m., mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes I waver and fall off and then it, you know, I, I finish out the rest of my workout or something else later on in the afternoon. But ideally, I'm trying to get as much done early in the morning as possible, yeah. you know. So that's the first thing that puts barakah in your time. Yeah. Also, when you exhaust yourself that way, then it's okay for you to, I mean, alhamdulillah, I can afford to do so because I'm not a nine to five. Yeah. I'll take a small nap in the afternoon. It's a it's a reboot. It's a sunnah it, of the prophets, not a sunnah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Tayyuba is a part of many cultures too, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so take up take an afternoon nap, and you have a re-energized rest of the uh, the day. My mm -hmm. my the most exhausting part of my day is the evening. Uh, I have two classes back to back usually, the Arabic class and then dars of the Quran, mm -hmm. and then by that time, by like eight thirty p.m., I'm technically checked out. Right, it's done. For sure, I'm done now. There's sure. no more brain activity. Mm -hmm. So now I need to do something brainless and have dinner and just chill with my family. And that's it. Yeah, that's what's happening. So um, I, I and, and it's not continuous hours of work for me either. Uh, brain work like Quran study, for example, um, I don't fully concentrate more than 20 minutes. Mm. So what I do is I full concentrate 20 minutes, then play some video games, then fully concentrate at 20 minutes then shoot some basketball, then just fully concentrate. That's how I do it. I break it up mm -hmm. because you break to up me, the chunks. Productivity mm -hmm. is more about focus than about the number of hours spent. Right. right. So what's the most optimal way to do it? And I have other weird quirks. Like I can't sit in a meeting and I'm allergic to PDF documents. So <laughs> when people say I've sent you a proposal, it's a PDF. I say, oh, oh, oh. So just tell me about it. I definitely agree on the meetings. But... I walk around in meetings. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't sit in a meeting. I'm walking mm -hmm. around. While I'm in the meeting. It's tough with the COVID as well. I mean, everything's on Zoom right now. Everything's online. It's like you have to sit through sometimes hour-long Zoom meetings. It can get uh, pretty draining, to be honest, for yeah. sure. How, uh, yeah. So there's an, there's a few more, inshallah, that I'm going to pull up, actually. But the secret is definitely in the morning routine as well. I love that. Uh, question for Ustad. Can you elaborate on some of the challenges in scaling up Baina initially from a one-man show into a full team and how you maintain control and quality in the organization? That's such a great question. Uh, I'm definitely curious to hear your answer for that as yeah, well. Yeah, so... I went from a one-man team to a massive organization. I had 60 employees at one point. Mm -hmm. And then I scaled back down and we're less than 10 now again. Mm -hmm. So we're actually a very lean operation again. Right. And now my idea of scale is based on project. And on a particular project, all I do is bring in consultants. In other words, bring in, in a sense, partners yeah. you know, for that project. I don't believe in... By the way, the long-term employees I have, they're like... Uh, limbs on my body like they're really essential people right and they i don't treat them like employees they're like family right they're part of the bayina family they're the, the inner core team of, uh, of bayina but outside of that when i get expert help like for example this auditorium that you see behind you uh we needed to configure the sound system in here the video system in here so we'll find one of the best you know uh video production companies and sound companies develop a relationship with them and it's not a full-time i'm not they're not a full-time expense they're, they come in when they're needed right as yeah. far as scaling is concerned i'm all about 
uh, leveraging and collaborating. Yeah. Right. Scaling with an existing school or leveraging an existing school or, you know, leveraging the services of a publisher because we, we publish too. Right. But I don't want to become a publishing house. That's that's a business by itself. It has its own headaches. Yeah. So find an existing publisher that, you know, is doing well that are that believe in your work. And the way I can tell that is when I meet the leadership of a certain company, I get to know top tier leadership, get to know them personally, get to know their personalities. And if my personality with them jives, that means actually their business worldview and their business ethic is in sync with mine. You know what? I can not have this headache. I can pass off publishing to them. Right. And so in any area that I want to scale, I look for the, the key thing is looking for the right partner. And if right. you don't find the right partner, it's better for you not to scale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because if you scale with the wrong partner, you're going to end up that wing is not only going to fall apart, it'll tear part of you down with it. Right. And I've done that, too. I've had wrong kinds of partners, too, uh, that, you know, you're just idealistic. You just want to jump on. Somebody gives you a pitch. Oh, this is how we're going to scale. You jump onto that pitch. Then you realize these people have their own way of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. I have a very unique way of, you know, uh, uh, scaling, because I don't want even as we grow. And my my intention is to grow this 100 times bigger than it is now, you know, in the next 10 years. And inshallah, and even as I do that, I don't want to lose its soul, right? Because growth comes with um, becoming kind of corporate, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah. And I've experienced that in Bayina at one point. We grow so much, and I started seeing wings of my own company and saying, that's not in line with how I think. And then some of my own team would say, no, no, just you just be the speaker guy, okay? Let us do the business thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I handed some parts of my organization to people that had a very cutthroat business kind of mindset. And it was it was kind of a little bit of a red flag, but then I said no, no, no. But I should focus on Quran studies. I should focus on what I'm good at. These people are good at the business side, and I didn't trust my gut. My gut was saying no. The business approach I started with is the business approach I need to continue. I don't need to come get, get somebody to reorient me, yeah. and then redo the entire business philosophy of of the thing. So again, it comes back to finding the right partner. You don't need a yes man, but at least in a, in vision. This person agrees vision. with your vision, and it's then the they can cre create new avenues or new solutions within that vision. Yeah, right. That, I mean, that's that's really the most important thing. Hundred percent, and even with with Omerpreneur as well. I mean, we're we're a small team, and every single person within this team, one hundred and ten percent believes in what we're trying to do here, nurturing Muslim entrepreneurship. And so, because of that, we can bring that energy, we can bring that dedication. And I think once you find those people, that they don't just want to work for you to be like, oh, this is potentially a good salary or an opportunity for me. But this is no, this what this person is doing or what this institute stands for is something I 100% believe in. And I want to give my own effort and energy towards achieving this mission. And those are the best people. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. We'll take one last one, inshallah, from the audience. Uh, Ustad Naman, what do you think about the importance of entrepreneurship, especially in our Muslim community? How necessary is it? A question from a dream student. Love that. Okay, dream student. Good <laughs> How the importance of entrepreneurship, I think entrepreneurship is step two. I think step one is work ethic. Mm -hmm. And if we're not raising a generation of kids, young boys and girls that don't develop work ethic, that don't try new things, we're not putting our kids to explore carpentry or, you know, how to, how to fix stuff around the house or, yeah. you know, solve it, solve a problem and, you know, be hands on with things and not just get someone to do it for you. Right. Um, then we're not creating a certain kind of psychology in our children, 
and especially young kids. And I absolutely believe that, um, and I, I want this for my own kids, like when they're in college, they should have a job. Mm-hmm. There's no way they should just be going to school. They should be going to school and, and, and work. Yeah. They should be working. The moment they're able to work, they should be working, doing something, doing something. Because if you don't develop work ethic, then the most important key component to being a successful entrepreneur isn't there. And that is the grit to be able to last doing hard, intense work. You know, yeah. um, hard work is going to be the key at the end of the day. And then, of course, the other thing we need to encourage in our community, in our, which really boils down to in our own family, is constant learning, learning new ideas, learning new things, learning new fields. You know, how will you not how will you know you're good at something if you don't try it? And when you try it, it's not just that it feels good. It's that you get validation from people that know their stuff. Like, you know, scouts in basketball, they see some 10-year-old taking a shot. They say, this kid's got potential. He needs a coach. You know, they can, they can, they can see the raw talent, yeah. right? So sometimes your interests and your talents align. And sometimes your interest is somewhere else, but your talent is somewhere else. But early on in our kids' lives and young people, they should try different kinds of interests and they might discover that one of those interests and their talent actually aligns and that's where they can become an entrepreneur right that's a problem they can actually truly solve for the world right so that this is something that if we don't give creative room to our 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 generations um, and we keep stigmatizing certain industries and certain areas of exploration and we say the, the certain staple careers in the Muslim community, especially immigrant Muslim communities, certain careers are successful. Everything else is, eh, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's second tier. Mm-hmm. And then there's the people who shall not be mentioned. Right. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. No, I completely agree. And you know, it's interesting you say this because sometimes I talk to people and uh, they're like, Oh, I want to start a business. I'm not sure what, you know, what field it's going to be. in." I'm like, okay, well tell me, tell me about the things that you enjoy. Tell me about your passions. Tell me where your interests lie. And just that question itself is so hard to get into because it's mind blowing. The number of people who don't really explore, don't really, well, you know, go out of their box. Be talking about entrepreneurship. If right, you don't know 100%. the answer to that question, you should not be talking about entrepreneurship because mm-hmm. you're thinking about entrepreneurship as an easy way to make money. Mm-hmm. Correct. This is where you're wrong. Correct. This is, you're better off just right. driving a taxi if that's what you want to do. <laughs> right. This is not going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. 100%. Entrepreneurship is about a crazy idea that you know works and everybody else thinks it's crazy. And now later on, you're like, I, man, I knew he was going to do something great. Yes. <laughs> once, you, once you finally reach it, they're like, I, I had once a feeling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I don't know. I love that. So, Jazakallah Khair so much uh, for joining us on this podcast. And this was an absolute masterclass. I loved every part of it. And I want to ask you, is there some something you want uh, to share with the audience? Any parting words? Any place you want them to go? Any upcoming classes with Baina that you want them to know about? Feel free. Uh, any upcoming classes? Well, uh, inshallah, not a class um, uh, this uh, Ramadan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I put a lot of thought into what am I going to do in Ramadan? What am I going to do in Ramadan? Right? So, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about uh, how to structure this Ramadan's contribution. It's not going to be on Baina TV. I'm just going to make it open source uh, as I do every Ramadan. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that kept coming up in different ways was this idea that we have um, departed 
our religious, we've separated our religious identity as Muslims mm-hmm. from what we call the religion of Ibrahim, alayhi salam. So one of the names of Islam is it's the religion of Ibrahim, alayhi salam. And that's important philosophically and also in, in terms of a Muslim mindset because he's the only prophet that our prophet was told to follow. Right in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Our prophet is told to follow the legacy of Ibrahim Arisa. And that's his father. And Allah calls him our father Ibrahim. Now, the, the reason that's important is we think of the stories of the prophets as like chapter-wise, right? The story of Adam, the chap, the story of Noah, the story of Ibrahim, the story of Musa. These are the stories, and we can learn lessons from these stories. I would put Ibrahim Alayhisam's story in a separate category. I would put it as the defining story of for, for a Muslim, like for Muslim identity, yeah. his the, what you get out of his identity is actually the Abrahamic mindset, right? And that is actually the core of Islam itself. It's 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 the core of Islam. And what I wanted to do this Ramadan is to highlight why that is the core of Islam. Why, how does Allah talk about Ibrahim in the Quran? Salam? What is the relationship between Ibrahim salam, and the actual mission of the Prophet salam? And how they're intricately connected. And how when you don't connect these two, the kind of picture of Islam you have without the Abrahamic, the Ibrahimi mindset, and the kind of picture you have with the Ibrahimi mindset almost looks like two very different religious worldviews. And I, I, I and I want myself and everybody to have to, to reconnect these two things mm. and to put them in the forefront of our psyche. Because uh, uh, Muslims have... You know, we in, in the Muslim world, we, we, we put certain lenses on when we look at ourselves in the mirror, right? So you're Muslim, but then you put a fiqh lens on and you say, I'm, I'm, I identify myself as a Hanafi, or I identify myself as a Shafi, or mm-hmm. whatever. And then you, some others can put like an Aqidah lens on, and they can say, I'm Athari, or Maturidi, or, you know, whatever else, right? Ash'ari, or something else. And so we have these lenses, and we see our Islam through one of those lenses. Unfortunately, but that is the conditioning that that's the product of you know recent history. What I'd like to do is to offer a new lens, an Ibrahim lens, right? And so before you, I see myself as anything else. I see myself as the the follower of the religion of Ibrahim. Millat Abina Ibrahim. Millat Abina Ibrahim. So that will be my goal this this Ramadan, inshallah. Thirty have thirty nights to try and do it. And to, to take contemplations from the ayat that talk about Ibrahim and build inshallah. that worldview. I'm, I'm so excited to be able to witness that and, and follow it as well, inshallah. Where can people go to make sure that they are able to keep up with this and um, uh, be part of it? Uh, Bayina's official Facebook page, uh, mm-hmm. my checkmarked Facebook page, not mm-hmm. the fake ones. Um, <laughs> there's, there's funny enough, I should say, I'm going to call these guys out. There's, there's something called Numan Ali Khan official on yes. instagram and it's not me <laughs> okay uh, yes i was wondering <laughs> apparently it's official it's got half a million followers and yeah, I, yeah. I comment every once in a while i was like if, if you're me then who am i so we'll make sure to include the real instagram links and uh the banner links in the description okay, so yeah. you guys can you go can attend. and then on youtube of course on our on our official youtube channel 
It'll be awesome. broadcast live there also. All right. Awesome. So make sure to go ahead and check it out, guys. Jazakallah Khairustad for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Okay. And we really enjoyed every minute of, a minute of it. So Jazakallah Khair. I enjoyed the conversation. Too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Jazakallah Khair. And guys, you know the drill. If you enjoyed this episode, I want you to go ahead and actually blast it to every single person that you know, make it go viral and share this beautiful message with the people, the friends, the family that you have. And of course, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. If you're listening after watching this live, if you may be listening on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, wherever, go and leave us a rating and make sure to subscribe as well. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Jazakallah khair for tuning in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.